Grace and peace to you. They're going to have to forgive me. I'm, my voice is going to, it's going to go out. So anyway, listen, I've been on um, about hospitality for the past couple weeks, um, as you know, right? I'm sure you're thinking, how long can he go on about hospitality? Well, <laughs> the reason I'm on about hospitality is because it's important. I really am convinced that it is the most important evangelistic strategy that there is in our day. I sort of talked about that last week. As our culture grows more isolated and more fragmented, it will be hospitality, again, opening our lives and our homes to neighbors and strangers and one another, that will usher people from this world of the machine, remember that, the metaverse, into the kingdom of God. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be that, the table that's the transition from one world into the next. Now, thus far, I've dealt with sort of two things. I've wanted to handle certain objections to hospitality, uh, things that get in the way of hospitality. That was the first sermon. And then last week, we really just sort of talked about how to create a welcoming environment, right? What it means to extend to others the welcome of grace. Now, this morning, we're going we're gonna to end hospitality this week, talking about it at least, um, we hope the practice will continue much further, but we're going to just end the address this week. And what I want to do is focus on the heart more directly. Because as I've said in weeks past, hospitality, the actual practice, is not that hard. Right? I look around and I see people who are a lot better at hospitality than I am. Right? Just being able to welcome people and cook and do all those other things. It's not that hard, really. We know how to entertain guests, and we know how to handle ourselves around non-believers. The hard part is getting there. The hard part is actually mustering up enough courage and compassion to strike up a relationship with our neighbor, to invite them into our home. I don't doubt at all the competency. The motivation, however, I think is sometimes the issue. The motivation. And I do wonder that, you know, as we've gone through these past two weeks on hospitality, if we've thought, you know, that's for someone else, or that's their job, and we've sort of just, they can take care of it. I worry that the motivation is the issue, and so that's what I want to address this morning. And I want to set forth three sort of spiritual disciplines or heart postures that will encourage hospitality. Right? It starts with the heart. We know that. Jesus put all the emphasis when he taught on the commandments, when he instructed his disciples, that it's from the heart that things arise. Right? What's that proverb? Um, it's 4.23 or something like that. Uh, Guard your heart, from, for from it uh, spring the issues of life. Anyway, the heart matters. And so that's where I want to start because everything works from there. So let's begin with this first spiritual discipline. Let me ask a question. <clears throat> What's the hard part about hospitality? What do you think? What's the hard part about hospitality? I'll answer if you're too shy. It's, it's the people, of course, right? The people are the hard part about hospitality. I sometimes think that I would be really well-suited to hospitality if it weren't for the people, right? <laughs> uh, but alas, the two can't be separated to have hospitality, you have to have people. 
So in order to practice hospitality, our fundamental disposition toward other people has to change. Our heart toward them has to change. And the one thing that we need most, above all others, is compassion. Now in Luke 10, the passage we just read, Jesus is approached by a lawyer. Now rather than a a lawyer in our day, think of a seminary professor. Someone who is meticulously trained in the scriptures. And this lawyer approaches Jesus to test him. That is, to see if this upstart prophet measures up to the standards of the establishment. So he approaches Jesus and he asks, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The most fundamental question. And Jesus responds, You tell me. To which the lawyer promptly responds with the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's verse 27 of chapter 10. And Jesus says, correct, you're right. Do this if you can, and you will live, verse 28. But the lawyer, being a lawyer, was not content with this. He wanted, Luke tells us, to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, if you're familiar with Jesus, and you are, you will know that this is not a good strategy by the lawyer. No one enters into scriptural debate with Jesus and lives to tell the story. So Jesus then proceeds to tell the lawyer a story. And he talks about a man. This is a parable, so it's not real life, but it's, it reflects real life because the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a pretty dangerous road. And if you took that road, more often than not, you knew you were sort of taking your life into your hands. So this man goes down that road. He was beaten. He was robbed. And he was left half dead on the side of the road. And by chance, Jesus says, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, so there's a, there's a half-dead man, maybe dead himself, you, you don't know. He saw him, he says, he passed by on the other side of the road, a priest. He says, likewise, a Levite, so uh, a Levite would be an assistant to the priest, okay? A Levite, it says, when he saw him, he did the same thing. He passed by on the other side of the road. So these men... Jesus is being very punchy with what he's doing here. These men are religious leaders. And yet, they pass the man by. They see him from afar. They change change sides of the road, and they avert their eyes while he lies there on the ground. Then, Jesus says, a Samaritan. Now, if you know the context of that time, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. So again, Jesus is really being punchy with what he's saying. A Samaritan came upon him, and when he saw him, he says, he felt compassion, verse 33. And so the Samaritan stops, and he rushes to take care of him. Jesus says he bandages his wounds. He treats them with oil and wine. He takes him, and he heaves him upon his own beast, and he takes him to the nearest inn, and then he treats him again there. And then 
He pays the innkeeper to watch after him, and he promises him to repay any additional expenses that he might incur in the process. So it's just radical, radical um, care and love that the Samaritan shows for this man. And then Jesus asks the lawyer, verse 36, which of these three men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So what Jesus does here is he turns the lawyer's question on its head. Do you remember what the lawyer asked? Who is my neighbor? But Jesus asks, who proved to be a neighbor? And in his parable, Jesus teaches the lawyer and us the real meaning of the second great commandment. It's not about setting boundaries on our love. That is, who is and who is not our neighbor. Rather, it's about being neighborly ourselves, regardless of who crosses our path. So you see, the, 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 the lawyer wants to know, who's my neighbor, so I know who to love. Jesus says, no, that's not the issue. The issue is, are you being neighborly yourself? And so, to Jesus' question, the humble lawyer responds, verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus responds, go and do the same. The parable of the Good Samaritan. So the question is, <coughs> what does any of this have to do with hospitality? Well, Jesus doesn't allow his disciples to play the same game as the lawyer, drawing boundaries around our love. Jesus is not concerned with who our neighbor is, again, but he's concerned with whether or not we ourselves are being neighborly. So he locates the commandment square in our hearts, and he makes compassion the decisive issue. And if you notice, all three travelers are described in the very same way. They came to where the beaten man was, and they saw him. But only the Samaritan truly saw him. Jesus says that he saw him, and he felt compassion, while the others saw him and passed him by. So why did the priest and the Levite pass the man by? Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't give us a motivation for them. And I think that's important. There might have been any number of reasons they saw this dead man and passed him by. I would think probably fear. They're probably waiting there for me, waiting for me to turn my back and hunch over this man, and they're going to get me. Maybe they were on an important errand. I got to go and I got to get this done. Maybe it was pride. Here are these religious men, and they just don't want to do that. It could have been any number of things, but the important part is that Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't give us any reason. And why is that? Well, because in the end, there are no excuses. Those reasons, whatever they might have been, are irrelevant. A man was in dire need, and they failed to act. Instead, their reaction is not defined in terms of, of you know, what they did or their reasons. It's just defined in terms of what's missing. Confronted with such need, there's only one response that Jesus finds acceptable, and that's compassion. That was the only difference between the two. And it's here, I think, that the parable makes its way home to us. I think what the Lord is speaking to us in this passage is that he wants us to develop 
that same vision as the Samaritan, which is the vision of compassion. He wants us to see the need of our neighbors and seeing it to feel compassion. Now, how does that start? How do we get to compassion for our neighbors? Well, it starts by not intentionally blinding ourselves to the suffering and heartache of our neighbors. It starts by not intentionally blinding ourselves to the suffering and heartache of our neighbors. Again, was the Samaritan man simply better than the priest and the Levite? Was his heart exceptionally noble and theirs exceptionally black? I don't think so. When I read this passage, I get the sense of haste with the priest and the Levite. Not that they sped by him on the other side of the road. They may very well have picked up their pace and passed him by. Rather, that when they saw him, their mind was already made. Compassion never had a chance to develop. And we've all been there, right? We've all been in that similar situation where maybe there's a prompting in our heart. Maybe there's you know, a, a, a homeless person on the off-ramp or someone who's in need. Whatever the scenario was, and then we see them and turn our head the other way and pass by. And the problem is, compassion never has a chance to develop. Compassion comes when we do not pass by, and instead we choose to see. And instead we choose to see. And I think that's what Jesus would have us do, is to see our neighbors, the people that he's placed in our lives. That might be the people who live in proximity to you. That might be the people in your workplace. That might be even your family members who are unbelievers, whatever it might be. But I think that's what this passage, that's where it starts at least, is with seeing them. Because our instinct is to see another burden, right? Another interruption to our schedule. There's another strain on our patience, and we're sort of reluctant to engage. But Jesus wants us to slow down and cultivate a neighborly, compassionate heart. <clears throat> Listen, I know that's hard. That compassion and the action that it would lead to, of course, brings inconvenience, it brings discomfort, and it brings pain. I know that that is hard, right, when you open your heart like that. I think when I've sort of made mistakes is that I've always overextended myself, you know, sort of bleeding heart compassion. And then at a certain point, it's like, okay, I can't do this. I'm too overwhelmed. There's too much going on and too much need. And it's like, I have to be more within my bounds. But in the end, listen, there are only two options. There are only two options for us. And I want to just let C.S. Lewis explain this. He says, Excuse me, it's just a little long. But he says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. He says, wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a safe casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. 
It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. He says to love is to be vulnerable. So it's the casket where we sort of insulate ourselves from compassion and what it would require of us, or it's actually reaching out. And our neighbors, every time we're confronted with them, will make us decide. There's always that choice. How am I going to respond to this person? Am I going to insulate, or am I going to reach out in compassion? So, as we're talking about hospitality here, and we're talking about the heart specifically, let me encourage you, pray for your neighbors. And ask, you, ask God, rather, to give you compassion for them, to see them, and then go out and be a neighbor. Go out and practice hospitality. So that's the first thing. <coughs> that's the first thing. Now, if people are the most difficult part of hospitality, the second place goes to the fact that hospitality takes Time and money. The fact that it takes time and money. Hospitality will eat up space on your calendar. It will crowd out some items on the budget. And let's face it, apart from those exceptionally godly souls among us, we tend to be stingy with those things. Practicing hospitality and practicing it regularly requires us to view our material possessions, our homes, what we have in a new light. There has to be that shift first, right, before then we can go out and practice hospitality and do it regularly and do it well without ultimately becoming um, bitter or hurt or upset. There has to be a, a change in our hearts in the way we relate to our stuff. So on one occasion, this is now chapter 12 of the Gospel of Luke, on one occasion, Jesus was teaching and there were thousands of people gathered around him. And from the midst of that crowd, a man shouted to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Well, that's quite a bold move. There's Jesus teaching thousands of people, and this man interrupts it all. But it was actually not that uncommon in that time to consult a rabbi or to consult a teacher to settle a dispute. They were sort of the authorities on these things. Anyway... In this case, the matter is a family inheritance. One brother, presumably the younger brother, is getting the bad end of the deal, while the other brother makes away with the fortune. And so he speaks up, and he wants Jesus to settle the dispute. He wants him to secure his justice. So Luke says, uh, there on the screens, uh, but he, Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So earlier, the lawyer made a mistake by um, engaging in scriptural debate with Jesus, and here this brother makes a mistake by presuming. He presumes around Jesus. The brother who was cheated out of his inheritance presumes that's the main issue. He's being, untreated, tre being treated unfairly, and he has a right to what's his. 
But Jesus sees, sees things differently. He says the matter is not this injustice that's been done toward him. He says the matter is the greed of his heart, of this particular brother. And Jesus, he just says, I'm not judging between you two guys. And instead what he does is he begins to warn the crowd and his disciples about the dangers of setting their hearts on material possessions. And then, as he does, Jesus proceeds to tell another story. This time about a rich man whose land, this is chapter 12, verse 6, was very productive. This rich man had so much because of this increase of the harvest that he didn't know what to do with it. And then he came up with the plan. He said to himself, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger uh, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, verse 18. And the rich man is quite pleased with himself and his plan. And so he says to himself, verse 19, in sort of congratulatory manner, Soul, you have had many goods laid up for many years to come, or you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This guy's living the dream. His bank account has plenty of zeros to last him decades. He doesn't need anything. His only concern now is, how am I going to spend it? I can eat, drink, and be merry. But Jesus says, he, he, these, heavenly, these earthly plans, heavenly wisdom runs counter to them. And Jesus says, but God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And who will now own what you have prepared? Verse 20. So in our culture, the rich man is the goal, right? It's everyone's dream to have more than enough, to put it away as security, and then to spend the rest of our lives in carefree leisure. To us, this is a wise man who's living the good life. But to God, he's a fool. He's not a manifestation of righteousness, but greed. So what wisdom is there to be learned in this foolish example? Well, Jesus wraps up the parable, verse 21, and he says, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Again, Jesus's parable is aimed at changing our relationship to our wealth and possessions. The rich man's airtight logic is cracked open on the reality of the kingdom of God. Now, his plan makes perfect sense. It does. If this present life is all there is. His plan makes perfect sense if this present life is all there is. What can one desire more than to have their nest egg and to enjoy it while they can, right? That's the perfect dream if this life is all there is. However, if there is a coming kingdom, then this rich man has it all wrong. The kingdom exposes his worldly pursuits as pure folly. And instead, Jesus teaches his disciples, he teaches us a different way. He says, verse 32, do not be afraid. Your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid. Your father has given you the kingdom. And because we're children of God's kingdom, there's a different path that's opened before us, right? A different way of relating to what is ours. The rich man stored up his goods because he desired two things, right? There was two things he was after. The first was security, right? What does he say to himself? 
you have many goods laid up for many years to come. All right, that's insurance. He's taken care of. And then he also desired the good life. Hey, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That's what he wanted. And Jesus addresses both of those concerns. First, <coughs> excuse me, he promises to his disciples a greater security. Not mere riches, but a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Or as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So this rich man has nothing that a poor man does not already possess. It's uncertain. There's one foundation, really, in life, and that's God. That's the one security that we need. You know, on his deathbed, uh, Martin Luther, uh, uh, the not King Jr., but Martin Luther of the Reformation, um, he was extraordinarily uh, lavish in his generosity. Um, he would house people. Anyway, all this stuff. He almost went broke with his hospitality because he just, and, and, and anyway, on his deathbed, he said to his children, my dear son and my dear Kate, I have nothing in worldly goods to bequest to you, but I have a rich God. He says, him I leave to you. He will nourish you well. That's the spirit of what the Lord is saying here. There's no security there. It's ultimately, (laughs) when our economy collapses, we'll all find out. It's ultimately empty. There's one hope, and that's God. Now, as it pertains to the good life, Jesus exposes the lie that possessions and wealth count for something. He says in verse 23 of chapter 12, life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And he says in that earlier passage we read, even when one has an abundance, does his life not consist of possessions? Or Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, we've brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. Those things, the things that we possess, they always want to, they, they want to become not things, but like limbs and possession or, or, or parts of our body that are so painful to do away with them because they become part of our life. Jesus says the body is more than that. Life is more than that. These things are not the substance of life. They're just tools, and they're used to foster life. So what then? At the end of that passage in chapter 12, Jesus sort of comes to a culmination, and he says in verse 33, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. So he says, like, you want security in life. He says, use your material possessions for others, and and you'll store up treasure in heaven. And listen, nothing is going to come and destroy that. So God gives to us that we might give away. And 1 Timothy chapter 6, 19, take hold of that which is life indeed. That's why God gives us these things. So on the last day, and this is a sobering thought for all of us, on the last day, an accounting is going to be required of us. Right? You guys know the parable of the talents or of the minas. Whether we have been given much or whether we have been given little, the master will want to know what we've done with it. Did his kindness to us meet a blockage in our lives? 
and dam up and become sort of spoiled and good for nothing? Or did it flow through our lives and refresh, refresh the lives of other, others? So hospitality is a very earthly task, setting out food, welcoming guests, so earthly, but it requires a heavenly vision. It requires a heart that's oriented toward the kingdom. Do not fear, little flock, for my Father has chosen gladly to give you a kingdom. It requires that our hearts are set on that, on not this world, but what's to come. So again, just like the last passage, Jesus commands us to see, to truly see our neighbors and to see beyond the illusion of this world to the world to come, to truly see. And that, again, starts in the heart. And lastly, <coughs> we'll wrap up pretty quickly here with um, the last sort of spiritual discipline that's necessary for hospitality, and that's to cultivate a spiritual hospitality. That is, as we cultivate an internal hospitality for the Lord and for his word, we will develop the resources we need to then externally show hospitality to others. Um, Mary and Martha are the two opposite examples here. So Luke begins the story of Mary and Martha by telling us that Jesus was traveling along. Now Jesus began this journey of his back in chapter 9. Luke tells us he set his face to go to Jerusalem, chapter 9, verse 51. That is, as Jesus' death grew nearer, he knew it was coming. He didn't run from it. He didn't sidestep it. He set his face to go to Jerusalem to accomplish the Father's will and to drink the cup that he had given him. Now, the next chap 10 chapters from chapter 9 till he arrives in Jerusalem in chapter 19, Jesus is depicted as a traveler. He's going from place to place, seeking hospitality wherever he can. And as he enters a certain village, verse 38 of chapter 10, Luke says, a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. So that sets the tone for what's to come. This passage is telling us something about hospitality, particularly the kind of hospitality that Jesus seeks. So, let me cut this short. <coughs> the one day I don't have a voice is the one I just want to keep blabbing. So um, let me cut it short. Martha is doing all the preparations as they host Jesus. She's busy setting the table. She's busy preparing, pe preparing the food. You can imagine it's probably Jesus and his disciples. It's quite a lot of work. And her sister, Mary, she's not helping She's instead sitting at Jesus' feet, Luke tells us, and listening to his word. That's the posture of a disciple. When Paul tells us in Acts 22, he says that he was uh, uh, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, a rabbi. So a disciple is one who sits at their master's feet, and there's Mary. But Martha is not so happy about this. Um, in fact, she's so put out by it that she, takes, she puts everything aside, she comes up to Jesus, and she essentially accuses him. She says in verse 40, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? 
then tell her to help me. Now, she's upset at her sister and Jesus, but mainly Jesus, because he's the one who's letting Mary sit there. And she reads Jesus' acceptance of Mary, not as something good, but as a slight to her. In her eyes, Jesus doesn't care about her. He's overlooking her. As a side note, that's, a, that's just a good uh, description of what selfishness does to us. It sort of distorts our view, and we see nothing properly. But anyway, it prompts this response from Jesus. He says, verse 41 and 42, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about many things, but one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So as I said, this is a story about hospitality and the kind of hospitality that Jesus seeks. Martha does well. There's nothing wrong with serving, but Mary does better. It's good to serve Jesus and our neighbors, but it's better to sit at his feet. Jesus tells Martha that she's bothered and worried about so many things. And prior to that, Luke tells us that she's distracted in verse 40. And instead, Jesus says to her, only one thing is necessary. And he says, Mary has chosen the good part. Verse 42. So listen, before we get busy cooking meals, setting tables, reviewing our talking points, Jesus wants something else from us. Not the hospitality of the table, but the hospitality of the heart. He wants us to sit at his feet and to receive from him. Now, the point is, we have to receive before we can give. Being before doing, that's the popular phrase. It's the simple truth that if one doesn't practice the hospitality of the heart, it's going to be quite hard to practice the hospitality of the table. The hospitality of the table, for all of its external qualities, is ultimately a spiritual discipline. It's undergirded and supported by sitting at Jesus' feet. So God wants us to practice hospitality, but first he wants us to welcome Jesus and his word into our lives. One welcome facilitates the other. Now, as we close, I don't want to presume, right? I don't want to pretend like I know everything. But might I suggest that resistance toward hospitality stems from something deeper? That we have got up from the master's feet and we find ourselves now busy elsewhere, busy with other things, that we're more Martha than we are Mary. You know, maybe this business about compassion and sharing seems so difficult because we've abandoned that posture of a disciple, someone who sits at Jesus' feet. You know, I went to a pastor's conference one time. I don't know if you guys know the name, Alistair Begg. Just phenomenal teacher. I was so excited that he was there. I went early, got the front seat. He was teaching on John 13. I like could almost quote the sermon verbatim. And every word that came out of his mouth, I caught it before it went to the ground and took it all in. That's what a disciple does, right? That's where the Lord wants us. So, could it be that we've left that posture before the Lord? And if so, again, I don't want to presume, but if so, we need to hear those words again. One thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. So let's return to the Lord, whose very words are the words of life, 
and let's sit at his feet and listen with eager ears and ready hearts. And in fact, we've done that. So now he invites us to the table. So I'd encourage you, well, I'd ask you, come and uh, receive the elements of the supper. Take them to your places. <coughs> Spend time with the Lord, and I'll lead us in the Lord's Supper in just one moment.